This is a Culture Inject production. Shall I move on to episode four? Are we all good? So we're left questioning who killed Mary because we saw the gunman get released, but like it was like kind of this who did it. And we had our theories. We thought that it might have been Lavinia, but obviously we learned that it was Masson. Yeah, I didn't actually take much from this episode on a rewatch. But I will say at the very end, that little message, that just the thing that that sticks out like a sore thumb um when they they translated the message i think when she was saying come below and find me come before the dark and we can save mm. i think it was going to end we can save the future right yeah i feel like we can make that yeah i think the assumption is it's going to save the world or the future or whatever uh the other thing that stuck out with me with the end speech before so before you know we only knew so much but now after watching the end episode she's uh Harriet reads out, my lonely soldier, something about wearing stripes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which we now know, obviously, Amalia was Zephyr, who was a soldier, and she was striped. So, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But back then it was just kind of like, uh, you know, Harriet's like, oh, and then it was something about wearing stripes. They weren't sure what, what had been said, but, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Also, just on the... Um, she says that the song, uh, most of it was about emotion or semantics, which is the meaning of language. And picking up on what I said earlier about um, like empaths and possibly telepathy. So, you know, the Galanthia are empathetic and seem really emotionally connected to people as opposed to actually communicating via speech. So it's interesting that she said that the song, most of it was about emotion or semantics. And a lot of time it is, you know, in language, it's not necessarily exactly what you're saying, but how you're saying and what the meaning is behind what you're saying. That just makes me think of um, the, the the HBO, like, making of behind the scenes that they play at the end of this one. They focused on how they wrote Myrtle's lines for a lot of it. And it, it plays into that. They were like, you know, uh, you can pick the most emotional word from any language that you can pick. And it's, you know, not necessarily about the word and how it sounds, but it's like which one conveys the most that uh, they're trying to convey through Myrtle's lines. I will say about this episode that when I first saw it and there was that scene with Masson kind of confessing that or not confessing but confessing Mm. and i didn't think that masson was the one responsible but it sure seemed like the characters thought that masson could be the one responsible for killing mary and at the time i didn't really think the whole like the blowing up the factory thing it didn't really click to me as like why that it wasn't satisfactory that, oh, we're going to go blow up some crates or something to to get back at him for killing Mary in this heartbreaking scene. It just felt unsatisfactory to me. But now, like, I literally just had this click looking back on it that in the beginning of episode four, when they were kind of, like, intercutting between um, lower the funeral and the, the dudes on the dock with the bombs... I just realized that blowing up those bombs at the very end is kind of like a full circle getting back at him 
because of what those bombs represented, which was a whole bunch of other, like a whole bunch of caskets as opposed to just Mary's casket. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just getting jumbled a little bit. No, there's, there's definitely, there's definitely something there. And I think you're on the right track with that thinking for sure, because that is so purposeful putting those two scenes together. And I spend a long time in one of my YouTube videos going into like, which shots are intercut with which shots and what the song they're actually singing is about, is about something to do with workers and, and being managed by somebody above you and like living your own life kind of thing. So all that put together, I, I, I do think that it's a full circle moment for sure. Also, I was a bit disappointed that um, uh, I guess they're going to put Penance and Augustus together. I'm actually like so he- I'm so here for it. Really? <laughs> Mostly because I think one of them is going to die, but that might just be Aww. because I'm used to the weed and the weed and bring them together and kill them. And I think it's going to be Augustus. Sorry, everyone. Yeah, that's what I said. That I think they're like the innocence, don't we, of the show. They're kind of just these two perfectly lovely people that you want to be happy, but like say, it's uh, not always that predictable in a Whedon show. I think they're so cute, though. I mean, the way that she talks, like she's such a nerd about electricity, and he's like such a nerd about birds, and he like relates the birds. It's just so <laughs> funny. Like I get so much joy in their scenes every time. Yeah, I think maybe I just got too attached to the idea of Penance and Amalia together. That feels like more of uh, because the, the Augustus is so conventional. I was excited about the idea that these two female characters are so into each other and there's this relationship, but I guess it's platonic. Well, what's so interesting about that is like, I would be so here for like an Amalia penance romance, but there is something that I absolutely love about two people regardless of gender that have a relationship that is so loving but is not sexual at all i don't know if anybody's into um the show steven universe at all (laughs) but it uses a lot of these metaphors of uh these like these beings that confuse with each other and it's a metaphor for sex it's it's a child it's a children's tv show too but they have two characters that can't fuse together or can't have sex, but have like a very, very touching, emotionally involved relationship where it is basically a relationship, but it is not in any sense of the word sexual. And it goes into kind of like this, you know, this platonic love that two people can have that's more than a friendship, but less than a than a romance, but kind of walks the line. Yeah. That reminds me of the dragon soul bonding episode of Rick and Morty. <laughs> <laughs> I've emerged from my cum cocoon. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really love relationships in TV shows that you, you never, ever think they're going to get together. Um, and they're just, and, and these are like the perfect example. And like I say, I feel like they trust each other so much and they're like both each other's, favorite people in the whole world but there's never like an inkling of yeah any kind of romantic engagement which is nice because it takes away that question I think there's a lot of shows that that hold the same as like what we were saying at the beginning with questions when you're questioning something and they can hold you for an entire tv show because you want to know the answer to that question the same happens with characters and their relationships and you think the the kind of end goal is you want to see those characters together and that's like one of the main reasons you watch the show whereas I don't think this show has that we've kind of seen how close they are as friends and just you know the, there's nothing there but love but um and all the other characters are kind of already you know Horatio and Amalia been together not been together kind of together but not yeah I, I just enjoy just characters being able to be who they are without there being this 
question and this this hope that they're, they're gonna get together or whatever because it's really not like that important when it comes to the, the characters themselves yeah absolutely like i i wouldn't mind it and maybe the only reason that i'm like a little bit on the side of amalia and penance staying platonic is because you know I've gotten my Xena and Gabrielle in Xena, and they did that for like, you know, five, six years or however long that show was on. So I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to explore it without the romance. Um, I guess the major thing in this episode was the whole Lucy thing. Lucy says, how do you know how it's supposed to be? Which we obviously know is because she's from the future and she knows where the future goes. And she's really kind of like battling. She wants... She says like stuff along the lines of, you know, I'm trying to change it or this isn't how it's supposed to be. This this isn't what I've kind of been doing. She's really questioning like herself and the mission and what, what she's kind of there for. Yeah, absolutely. And she's also, you know, tying into the whole like, this isn't how the Galanthi did it last time. She literally is like, this is not how it's supposed to be. So another moment that makes more sense once you see it. Yeah. The Lucy thing kind of for me mirrors the, in episode six, the kind of that dude who betrays or turn turncoats on the, his own group of friends after getting convinced by the free lifer that the Galanthi is a threat because both of them like Lucy and that guy in the very last episode both of them turn on their own people and and in both situations that results in the assassination of Mary and Knitter who are both symbols of hope in their respective time eras. And um, now that you mention it, they're both shot kind of similarly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, About Lucy and the relationship they share, and like you say about her betraying them, she's so like into the fact that she's the first woman and, you know, was someone who could really be a friend and be there for her. In episode two, when they're going to the party, um, she wants Lucy to go because she's the muscle. And she also says, I'm sure Lavinia has security, but Lucy's ours. And it's like, oh, that hits so hard now, that line, because it's like, because at that time, she's not yours, but she so believes that she is. Um, so it just really, really escalates the, the betrayal level. Because for Amalia, you know, A, to probably trust someone after going through everything like that that we see in the future... Um, where she seems to be more of like a loner, you know, to trust someone and then be betrayed. Yeah, it's pretty hard-hitting stuff. Yep, they both get bullets and betrayal. Yep. (laughs) Okay, so we were on episode five. So I think this was a complete mind-blow episode. Yeah, this one one was was definitely interesting. I mean, down to learning about the production problems they had with, you know, COVID happening and having to kind of change how things go... Also, having the knowledge of of Effie Boyle being Malady the whole time, because I knew it was the same actress, the way it was all done was was really, really well done. Uh, so I felt like a complete idiot after I watched this episode, because everybody knew that the Effie Boyle was Malady, but I had no idea whatsoever. Maybe I'm just blind, but I didn't see the visual resemblance. I didn't hear the resemblance. So when that plot twist happened, it completely like uh, like uh, whiplash would be the word to use. But um, that's so funny. Did you, you did you guys not mention it on the podcast or like? No, Laura mentioned it, and that's the first time that <laughs> idea was introduced. To me. <laughs> well, what's so, I mean, what's so good about the the malady moment? You know, like I was saying before, how she can put on a show and kind of convince people that she is. Uh, uh, pretty sane uh, when she is pretty 
insane to be to begin with uh the reveal works in two ways because it reveals, uh, you know, somebody that's binge watching it might not realize that it's the same actress. So that is a shock. But the 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 shock in the reveal to me, knowing that it was probably the same person, was that she had the ability to appear sane like that and be calculated and have a plan. And so it works on multiple different levels, I think. Yeah. Also, like when I first thought to myself, that's her, uh, I didn't just immediately think, oh, she must have switched places with her minion. I was like... Has she got some hidden ability to like double herself or do you know what I mean? I was I was questioning a whole lot of things. So at the end when it's just like at the end when it's like, oh, it was just like a simple, very well thought out switch switcheroo uh, it was like oh wow melody is so smart <laughs> totally and the, and the moment now that i'm thinking back to a previous episode the moment that like made me think the same thing because i was doing the same thing you were doing laura where i was like does she have a hidden ability can she double herself i was thinking like, like maybe she had uh, there's an episode of buffy where xander's hit with the like this magical wand that splits his personality into two and and like the bad traits go to one and the good traits go to the other and I thought maybe that's something she could do but the line that like really had me going was when she goes to see Frank in his office and she says I was in the box with Mary while they were burying her yeah and so I kept being like maybe she can teleport herself because I'm still to this day sitting there going how did she manage to get out of that funeral box without anybody seeing her because I don't know if funerals like work differently in the Victorian era but isn't there usually like they start like covering the body almost immediately because you normally, you know, you take turns and you put the dirt on them and then the grave diggers come and they just fill in it. So like, yeah. did she just like pop out in front of all these people? It was like, hey, or did she like kill them all? If she did kill them all, which she probably didn't because we know she only kills certain people. Like, wouldn't people have heard about that? Like, <laughs> hey, there was this crazy bitch that just jumped out of this coffin. Like, <laughs> so that was something that like really threw my head for a loop. And now I just think it is just like a silly throwaway line where like it's just showing how like crazy she is. Yeah, I, I had the same idea of you about the split personality thing. Yeah, I did think to myself, maybe, yeah, when when she got like her turn, it was like it split her personality. So her sane self went one way and her like insane self went the other and they both went to like the extremes yeah and even the fact that effie Boyle's murder is the first murder that we see and if i'm being honest that was the one scene that i was like okay this scene like didn't really like tickle my brain at all or like make me interested i was confused because i was like who's this random person that's murdered that like is also introducing Frank's character for the first time. So having that be Effie's uh, murder scene was really good. Cause it was like such an underplayed scene that I like took for granted until, you know, Effie Boyle points out that she's wearing the same clothes. And in that scene, she actually kind of catches herself. Cause she's like, she's dressed like a, and she was going to say like a journalist, like a reporter, or that's how I saw it. But she says she's dressed like a, a secretary <laughs> you know like something <laughs> other than that she even says in that scene like i have the same outfit i have the same cut of the same outfit like she corrects herself you know i also like how obviously in episode one monday's like this like he's adamant this wasn't malady because the body's been moved and it had no kind of like you know she didn't do the writing he knew that one of them had done it to kind of cover up this murder even though it turns out they didn't have anything to do with the murder they've obviously just found this body down there but she's obviously put it there to make it like kind of throw 
the police of the sin and it worked completely. Yeah, not only for the characters, but for me as a viewer as well. Yeah, but you're right. In watching the first episode, it is kind of randomly slot in there and it is kind of taken as just to introduce Mundy. But now we know that it wasn't just to introduce him, but the, the body of Effie Boyle. Wait, so do you guys think that she purposely misspelled that message written in blood with pig's blood to misdirect Frank Mundy? Or do you think it's not mutually exclusive that, yes, she's the one who committed the murder, and also, yes, the workers down there were still tr- were trying to pin it on her because they don't like her or the touch? I think my first thought is that it was still the guys that did it, not necessarily to pin it on Malady, but just to throw the scent off that the police might have thought it was one of them. But at the same time, it definitely could have been Malady throwing them off the scent even more. After seeing her Effie Boyle thing, it's definitely I can believe that because like she's she's like the Joker at this point. And I know a lot of people have kind of made that comparison with her taking that wig off like that and laughing at the end. But it's so cool. Like she she's that archetype now of the trickster of the 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 one who wants to see unjust society bleed. There is a righteousness in that that I don't think is just crazy, but it's anarchic and it's crazy. It's, it's crazy in an ordered way. Like there's an agenda she has, you know, she definitely has a lot of space to grow into a character with agency and with, you know, interactions and who can be on the screen for more than 10 seconds at a time. Mm. Yeah. And what I'm, what I'm super curious about is, if Malady was responsible for the murder of Effie Boyle, which the only reason that it, you know, begs a question is because we know she kind of has an MO with who she who she goes after, the angels and the and the doctors. Uh I wonder if I wanna know what Effie was reporting on when she was Effie Boyle. If she was in fact a reporter, which I'm assuming that she was, and was it something that Malady felt she needed to do this and and take her over or was it just an opportunity she she felt she had because that's something i'm very curious i don't know if they're able to answer it about what effie was actually doing but she was actually a really good journalist because like we see that piece that she wrote in the very end and they uh desiree the blodgett reads it and it's very compelling work yeah i liked that when they say you know when they're (laughs) praising it and then you're like, oh, you don't know that it's written by Malady. And that, that, that article said something like, you know, if we allow this hanging to happen, then we all become Maladies ourselves, which is mm. really interesting. Because I'm also thinking now, like, how did she, did she choose the name Malady? Like, how did that come about for her? Personally, I don't know why it made me think of that. Malady feels like a very old fashioned word. It is phonetically very similar to Amalia, and those two characters are very familiar. They're kind of like competing prophets in the sense that Malady's the one who saw God and is trying to make everyone believe her, but nobody does. Whereas Amalia is the one who can has visions of the future, and we're just kind of, we're, we're, they betray each other, and we're trying to see who's the leader, who's not the leader. Amalia is shown to be not the best leader in general so there's something that's lacking but i do think that just the word malady in general which means like an outbreak of a disease i think it lends itself very organically to that era 
because the the craziness the the crime the violence it can feel like it can feel like uh like an epidemic or something that's breaking out or something something that's a sickness as a result of that you know so the word malady feels like uh like a really insensitive journalist or something in the, in the press kind of coined that and it stuck that's just my theory. I think we were hoping at some point whilst watching it that there'd be some crazy where it is like an anagram and the words all jumble up, you know, like in Harry Potter. And it's like, I am Tom Riddle or I am um, Voldemort, Lord Voldemort, you know, and it all just jumbles up and reveals and you're like, oh my God, it was there the whole time. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I, thought, I felt like we was waiting for a reveal like that, but instead we got a physical reveal of her uh, becoming, well going back from Effie Ball and turning back into herself. And I love her mad little la that she does at the end. She does it in the first episode and she does it at the end of this episode, which is basically like the start of her journey and the end of what we see um, so far in this, this sixth episode. So it's quite cool. And I could I could rewatch the scene of now that we know it's not Malady, but Malady's henchman hanging herself. Like I I thought there was something about it that was so funny because like the way that she jumps yep. and I've rewatched it many times. She like does this little kick with her feet, like you know, like when like a little kid like jumps up and clicks their heels together on the side. She like dives into this like you know hanging, and now we know she like feels as though she has to do it, which makes a lot of sense. But like. I love that little moment. Yeah, it's like this henchman who's so, so... I mean, she's convinced that this is her one thing that she can do to help and to, like, kind of move to a higher plane or, you know, she wanted to be one of the touched and she wasn't and this is the only way that she can help someone who she sees as, like, a higher power because she knows that Malady has spoken to God or heard God and that's her connection. So, yeah, to have someone who's, like, so willing to, yeah, to literally jump into death for you... And the other That's guy. exactly true. She she wants so badly to be touched, and she says in that prison cell, um, "I'm your instrument. Why aren't you playing me?" Mm. And presumably, she's talking to God, and she wants so badly to be touched. And yeah, you're right. What's interesting too is the two henchmen actually in I think it's episode two when they're talking to Mary, they leave the scene because they mentioned they're late for church, and yeah. it is it is the henchman that um that the henchwoman that ends up hanging herself in Malady's place. And I was so curious about like what church is like, because they know that Malady's in the room. So like where, where exactly are they going and what is church to them? Or is it actually church? And it probably is. It's just so interesting that they're like, we're late for church. We got to (laughs) go. Yeah. I I think it's just the contrast of, uh, they start off in this little attic where they have someone imprisoned and they're torturing them. And then uh, they got to go off to church the yeah it's one of those jada spenson lines i was talking about where you end on a funny note the scene (laughs) yeah and i ended this episode i think i mentioned before i thought that the next episode was simply going to be like the first half was going to be us seeing what they got up to the the other team underground and then like the second half amalia and everyone kind of like talking in more depth about what the galanthi are and what they've discovered underground and and stuff so to be thrown straight away into like the future I wasn't shocked necessarily, but it was kind of like, oh, okay, we're doing this. I was so unprepared for that. I mean, I knew it was a possibility and me too. I was like so innocent when I think back to being like, yeah, we're going to see what they're doing on the other side. Like, it'd be so nice to get that. And then that <laughs> the opening shot immediately like put that all to shame. And I was like, okay, like 
I was not ready. Let's go. So I guess that's a good segue into episode six. As we said, it opens in a desolate future city and you've got the Planetary Defense Coalition and then you've got the Free Life. So I was a little bit confused when I first watched it. On a second watch, I'm kind of like, okay, this makes a bit more sense. But I was getting a little bit confused over like the names that they're giving themselves, like Stripe and Boot. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, it's like names to do with what they do as opposed to names that kind of represent who they are as a person. Yeah, the world itself is pretty interesting. My, my question is still when it's set, kind of like where, how far in the future is this? Because it could be, if we're assuming that the future before she goes back in time is like exactly our world as it is, but we can't necessarily assume that because it's a fictional TV show. So things could have advanced. Yeah, it's not a documentary. Yeah, things could have advanced more and it could be now or before or it's further in the future or it's now but because they've had the technology from the Galanthi, that's why they've got crazy looking ships and stuff like that and, and better technology. Yeah, absolutely. One of, one of my big questions was how far in the future exactly in the, is this? You know, is the entire planet like this or is it just the city that we're seeing? And then, you know, a little bit even further than that, I was like, is this even Earth? Which I am 98% positive that it probably is. But there is a sci-fi trope where you'll have like an Earth that's not Earth with the same names, like, you know, like New Edinburgh or something. <laughs> uh and that's kind of like a trope. So I was like, we don't know for sure if this is actually even on the same planet. I'm, I'm leaning towards that. But yeah, a burning question I have is how far in the future is this? Okay, here's my crazy theory. Um, I think that uh, it's 19, uh, I think it's 1939 or 1945 around that area. Because I think like the great war that we're seeing between PDC and the Free Lifers feels to me like a historic parallel to World War II and the worst possible World War II that could have been. And maybe that's just a historic parallel that's, you know, supposed to stand in for a future at like 3000 AD or something. But with the whole thing where the nukes were going to fly around on that bunker at the end, like the free lifers had called in the nukes, and then the anxiety of the turn of the century where we're kind of building up to this conflict and all of this tension and it's like the world is in this pressure cooker that's waiting to implode with world war one which dovetails into world war two i th i think and when lavinia talks about war and when masson talks about war i think that's the war that they're foreshadowing historically at least the world wars that are about to come. And then this, what this show does and what's so amazing about science fiction is it takes these real world things and it can put them in the prism, prism of fiction and fantasy and, you know, spaceships and dragons and stuff. So we can examine it, but we're kind of at a distance from it. So we're not so, you know, attached emotionally. And we can just say, oh, it's like a Terminator thing. What so I never, I never even thought. I mean, you just kind of opened up my mind a little bit of being like, this is like 1945 or like somewhere around there. Because what I immediately thought of was, what if the show is doing this thing where it's 
that was, you know, the worst possible example of what can happen in that situation. And the touched in the past is leading towards like where we are now. Like, like, like we are currently existing as people in the universe that was fixed by the Galanthi way back in the day. And like could do something really cool with that where it leads to this, you know, we got all our problems anyway that we're, that we're dealing with, which the show is touching on. But I was like, you know, that that's could be an interesting thing that they're doing. That would be awesome. Right? <laughs> that would be really cool. Yeah. Because I'm convinced that they they definitely know where it's going and what's happening for sure. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, like an alternate reality, alternate reality 1945, where the technology is better, the culture is different. Five billion people died, apparently, and it might have just been, you know, like in our even our, in our own history, there was an atomic, there were two atomic bombs dropped, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and if that led to a chain reaction of retaliations, if there was the technology more widespread and ubiquitous than it was, because at that time, America had the monopoly on atomic technology. So, you know, in an alternate reality where everybody has that and it's used, then why wouldn't why wouldn't there be retaliation? Why wouldn't most of the world be incinerated? It's crazy to think about. For sure. I was like, what if, what if, yeah, what if, what if, you know, people being instilled with this knowledge of Galanthi technology ultimately ended with their demise. And that's why the Galanthi was so adamant about leaving, where they were like, oops, made a mistake. <laughs> we shouldn't have given them all this information. And now this Galanthi's like, okay, we're not going to do that. Again, I keep going back to this rogue Galanthi theory. <laughs> um, I think that the Galanthi was sent to just help out and that. But humans as humans are know better and have the mass and mindset of, or at least half the population of the world for sure has the mass and mindset of like, this is just the way the world is. And even if it's shit and terrible stuff happens, it's just the way it is. And that's their answer to everything. And the other half of the world is pro Galanthi because they know that change is a possibility and that the world can be a better place. And that's literally just like the two worlds, like the two sides divided and they just completely clash and obliterate, obliterate the planet. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah, it's unfortunate, yeah. but that's definitely like <laughs> just the way the world is. Yeah, that massive uh, mindset probably evolves into the free lifer yep. platform, you know, resist change. Absolutely. And I actually think uh, there is one line in episode six that I thought was really interesting. And it's when Stripe says free life owns history. You know, the man who holds the stick is the one that does what, you know, controls everything. And I am also on the side, Chirag, that I think that the doctor and I think Lavinia are from the future and they're, they're both part of free life. And I think that the idea with free life is that Maybe they had the ability to go back in time all this time, but like they have always existed and they will always exist. And free life, whether or not it's called free life, you know, is is just the system that the, the people in charge, the you know. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I would only say that I feel like Lavinia, I don't think she's necessarily free life. I think maybe she's being manipulated by Dr. Haig because that scene that she has in the cafe with her brother um, where they're talking about their childhood, that it seems like a very human thing, and you know she has a lot of distrust for everybody altogether. We don't really know what her agenda is, but judge like when you um, mentioned the Shakespearean reference, that blew my mind because I feel like now she is going to be a tragic character. Oh, absolutely! I I, I, yeah. I have thought from the beginning 
that Lavinia's plan is she, because of that conversation she has with Augie in the in the restaurant where she mentions that they all went ice skating with Swan when they were younger, I immediately thought, oh my God, was she always in this wheelchair? Was she born this way? Was she not born this way? And I could totally understand how somebody like Lavinia believes that she should have been touched because she sees the touch as a cure for some of these things. So she probably has the mindset, like, if if the spores hit me, I'd be able to walk again. So she wants to find the cure to like kind of artificially create touch and hopefully help herself. Yeah, that's interesting. The contrast between her and Masson, where Masson wants to cure the touched and Lavinia wants to use the touch to cure herself. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where, you know, different different reasonings working together. Neither of them knows exactly what the other wants. Yeah, I haven't thought about um, Lavinia also being from the future, but... Um... Yeah, I'm with the whole she's trying to find a cure thing or she's trying to find how they work because she wants to be one of the touched to at least be able to walk again. Like, that's her goal. She obviously misses that life and, you know, that's one of her end goals. But when the Galanthi uh, orb cracks, she instantly is just like, kill it. Um, because, you know, she has that, she has that thing of like, this is war. And as soon as it makes a move as such whether it's conscious or not and it cracks her first thing is to kill it whether she thinks it's going to help her or what her goal is she just says kill it which is very like what the free lifers are doing in the future they're trying to kill all the galanthi even though as seemingly as we know they're there to help the planet and stop global warming and help the humans that's their instinct is to just kill them because you know they're doing things that are not what they want them to do you know She's experimenting on this thing, trying to dig it out the ground, but it cracks. It does something of its own free will, possibly, and her first instinct is to kill it. Which is interesting because she's all about change and progressivism. She's totally, she's cool with, you know, uh, the English language, taking a French vacation and all that type of stuff. But where the Galanthi does represent change and hope, for her, it doesn't represent that. I think that is a piece of evidence for the argument that she is uh, she's misinterpreting everything she's she might be getting manipulated by Haig or by something i don't know i'm i'm not sure what her agenda really is in fearing the galanthi because masson doesn't like the galanthi because it represents or i guess the free lifers don't like it because it represents change in power dynamics because it will change the status quo that they're benefiting from but I don't know what Lavinia does. I don't know if you guys if you guys also picked up on this, but Lavinia had this weird, interesting thing that happened along her storyline where she has that whole scene where she's talking to the doctor in the basement and they're both looking at the orb and they're covering their eyes every time it's glowing and it ends with the doctor looking at the orb. So it's insinuated that both of them at some point had, had looked at this. The only other person that like they really focus on looking at the orb was Malady when the ship was coming over, that she looked at it and like something happened to her brain and what i thought was really interesting was malady's first monologue she says to all of them you were all wearing your hats you had your hats on something about hats and then lavinia when she's having that scene with augie later where they're talking about the ice skating and she freaks out on the couple behind them that are excited about malady's hanging she says watch out augie there's vultures everywhere all dressed up in hats so I, I don't know if like the Galanthi, even just like looking at it does something to your brain, but there was a moment where I was like, that that has to be something purposeful, that her mind has shifted 
because of this experience about being around the Galanthi in general. Which is yeah, a very, that, very different than her saying kill it, you know? That's a very interesting thing, yeah, because her, her behavior in the cafe, she was having the headaches and is very much... Um, yeah, I, I think it is also the idea that who anybody in the Bible who sees God doesn't survive it. And, like, Malady believes that she saw God. And... Yeah, isn't there a whole saying that's like, to know God is to know madness? Yeah, something like that. You can never be the same person you were before. You, you're a new person once you've seen that light or you've had that revelation or Moses sees the burning bush or whatever it is. It's a death and a rebirth, mythologically. I, I think she's doomed for sure <laughs> with those headaches. Right. Anytime. Yeah, it's like in a disaster movie and when someone coughs, you know they're going to die. It's that kind of thing. Also, though, I I know we picked up that there might be something between her and Dr. Haig, um, whether that's like past relations or what, but is she just clearly being manipulated by him? Like, she's this rich, powerful person, and he's a doctor who wants to do these experiments, and he's possibly from the future and wants to, like, kill this thing or do whatever to possibly... Like, if it has the potential to time travel and he wants to get back to his time or, you know, whatever he wants to do, if he, is he just manipulating her to get what he wants? At which point he wouldn't care about her well-being, well, at least once he's got whatever his end goal is. So if she dies, it's like, you know, no biggie. Yeah, he's the only one that we've seen her be weirdly vulnerable and sensual with. Like, they were very touchy and feely with each other in that scene. So then we have the whole chapter two where we see Molly. So Molly's obviously extremely different to Amalia. We learn that she's a baker. We learn everything about her past and the husband, the abusive husband that was mentioned in the first episode. Um, and we obviously eventually see see her death. What a gorgeous sequence, too. I think that that... I thought chapter two is, like, the standout for me in that episode. I thought it was so perfectly done. I mean, first you get, you know, the 20 minutes of only knowing Knitter, and I found myself oddly emotional when she was shot, and then to find myself even more emotional. Uh, even on a rewatch, like, it actually, like, brings tears to my eyes when I'm watching the the Molly story, and it's it's only 10 minutes, and it's like, I completely understand what she went through, what she had to do. And they do it in this way that is like little vignettes of life. And I, you know, not like, not that I necessarily read anything or had other theories from that scene, but I just thought it was, it was really, really powerful. Yeah. I mean, like, like the, 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 one of the opening shots of that chapter two is her baking those little French pastries and she's setting them up and they look beautiful and very delicious. And the last thing she does is, you know, remakes those and they're all like deflated and she's treating them with just as much care, but it's like, she can't even produce the thing that she wanted to produce in that. It it just, I thought that was so well done. (laughs) Do th- I think? Oh, you go ahead. Because I was going to say, I do think the main takeaway from that chapter was was um, her hearing the the God has plans for us because that is one of the things she keeps hearing the whole time. And Molly's response back is, "Oh no," she says, "God has her plans for us." And then the doctor says to her, "I think that God has already written our stories before we've even come along." And it seems to be that that's kind of the the moment that she contemplates i don't think she actually decides to kill herself until she's in the alleyway but she definitely contemplates it in that moment feeling as though it's pointless 
Yeah, I think it's just one of those, the last thing, because you see her several times looking that way as if she's thinking about it, but only after that is she then kind of thought, maybe this is it. And, you know, had she gone with her gut and, you know, gone for that Varnum guy who she really liked, we never would have gotten the whole, all the machinery that, you know, all the cogs that turned so that Zephyr came into this body in this situation around these people. It would have been completely different. Yeah, that plays into your butterfly effect thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I I do think it's really telling that, you know, Molly is is the complete absence of hope at that moment that she that she you know commits suicide and zephyr also committed suicide and had the complete absence of hope and to like bring those two characters together which is why i think it has something to do with this um you can't artificially create hope in somebody you need to you need to allow them to build it and create a foundation because the hope isn't as strong if it's like given to you by somebody else I think that's Zephyr's story, isn't it? It's kind of like she seemed to have given up hope or not really had anything to fight for. She meets Nitta and sees kind of how hopeful she is. And it's her bond with her, even in that very short time that they know each other. I feel like they share a bond and, um, you know, it's like the parallel to Amalia and Penance. And that now when she's sent to the past she has that hope once stuff starts to get going especially in the later episodes Amalia talks about hope a lot and it's like she's taken on that responsibility from Nissa. and at first it, it was like it wasn't her mission you know she doesn't know why she's there but as time goes on she kind of gets to grips with that more and more yeah and I think the show is really her journey to really recovering hope because like she tastes it again with Mary's song and then we see what happens to Mary and that the death of Mary the death of hope and then how do you keep it going in those circumstances how do you resurrect you can't resurrect Mary for sure but you can keep her I guess message alive I think you mentioned earlier in possibly the first episode when we mentioned uh, Amalia or Molly taking her life that do you think that they switched places or just that Zephyr's soul was put into? That would be hilarious. If it was like a Freaky Friday situation and the second half of the season (laughs) is Molly waking up in the soldier's body in this apocalypse, like this meek baker lady waking up in the soldier. Oh my God, let let Molly rest. She's been through too much. (laughs) You can't just throw her into that. I feel like I heard you say it and I was like, did he just say that he thinks of switch places? Because like it hadn't entered my mind. Um, because, like you say, I feel like the Galanthi know that Molly had given up and that was she was done. And um, there was this empty vessel. You're right that to pull Molly into <laughs> into Zephyr's body would be a bit cruel. Like, oh, you had a really bad life already. Well, welcome to the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I think that I think that Amalia is the coming together of Molly and Zephyr because, like like you said, Tyler, they both had lost hope. That now they're both coming together, soul and body and mind. And I think moving forward into the next part of the season, more of Molly is going to come out in Amalia. Like, she's going to have to deal with more of Molly's life, I think. Absolutely. I was going to say the the moment where True is sitting at the table and Penance asks her how's it, how, how it went, and she says it was good. I kept saying she seems so heavy. Either she didn't get the answer that she wanted. And I, I do think in the moment, you know, that... Uh, 
Amalia is with the Galanthi and she has her vision that she is receiving the memories of Molly that she didn't have previously, uh, or at least Molly's life. And I think that she like felt like she lived it in that, in that moment. She, she, so her, her emotional state is like, wow, I just lived a lifetime and I know whose body I now possess. And before that, she didn't have a relationship to the body. She didn't know anything about this person that she had taken over. So I, I, I do think that, that is going to be a significant change when we come back is that Amalia will be aware of what happened to Molly for sure. That's exactly true because in that scene, Amalia was asking, who am I? Like what, what body is this? And and like the Galanthi kind of consummates Zephyr's consciousness with the body of Molly and the mind of Molly and the experiences of Molly And I think I mentioned this in the last episode to me, Molly really represents the traditional woman, you know, the traditional woman who wanted children and a family and, you know, who wanted to fit into that feminine role of the mother figure and, you know, this and that. Whereas Zephyr is more of the modern woman who's dealing with these crazy apocalyptic things that we don't even know how to wrap our heads around. Like in the world we live in today, uh, women have to deal with a whole different society than men have to deal with. It's it's a it's a it's a metaphor for a different reality, and the coming together of traditional and modern into one kind of yin yang, just complete woman who will become Amalia, self realized, uh, you know, and it it also gives me flashbacks to Dollhouse, like you were talking about. With the whole thing, like, what is my relationship to my body and my identity? Who am I? When you wipe away everything that I am, what remains? Who am I, really? Some interesting stuff. The more I think about, like, the parallels to the themes in the other shows, I'm like, this is kind of like a a magnum opus of sorts of, like, all these ideas that have been played with in all these other shows, that it seems like a natural progression that this is where it would go questions for what's going to come next is definitely kind of the big thing um i think they're going to go to the future that's my theory she's going to tell everyone at the orphanage what's going on and they're all going to like get on a ship or a time i i said this earlier actually because i watched the sixth episode again and i was like it'd be really funny if the next episode just starts and penance is like you know i built a time machine (laughs) just like straight (laughs) off she stayed up all night she built a time machine (laughs) Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised with how the show kind of like does that sometimes, which I love. What, what's funny is uh, I had the same thing where I was like, are we going to go into the future? Like, how soon are we going to go into the future? And there is a piece of me that's like, I would love for episode six to kind of be its own thing for a little while before we like go into this future setting, like maybe way down the road. But I, I don't expect it to happen in the next six episodes. And if it does, it might be like a, a flashback back of sorts to like maybe a memory that Amalia has so it's like a flashback to the future kind of thing yeah um because I kind of I kind of like it being this little like sprinkle of like this is this is the mythology of the show but like I did fall in love with it because of the Victorian ideas behind it you know so this is just like added spice if you will yeah I keep seeing a lot of reviews that are like oh it was a terrible show until the sixth episode and then it got interesting and then people want to see more but um 
Like, is it too little too late? I'm thinking to myself, what? No, the first five episodes were amazing. What were you watching? Like, <laughs> you know, this, well, at least for me, I felt like if it had never gone into the future and it was just this cool Victorian times and everything was like just in that time, it's super, super interesting. But now with this extra layer, I'm still very interested. Um, I would like to see snippets, like you say, almost if it's um, like Zephyr's, I don't know, a dream or reminiscing or a flashback of how the Galanthi arrived and how everything spiralled downhill, which could be done in like a montage flashback, like not super delved into. Um, but yeah, I kind of don't want it to be like Dollhouse where it's like, here's a series and at the end we have the epitaph episode of the future. Then here's another series with another epitaph episode in the future. But I think that because that series takes place, you know, the second series is like a year, maybe it's not that far in the future. Whereas what we're talking about here is so far in the future, possibly, depending on when it is. It could be 40 years or it could be, you know, we're not sure. Present times, because um, it's a much bigger time span. I feel like they won't do that. I don't think it will be like another five episodes and then one in the future again. Or at least that's what I, I don't think it will be. I think it'll either be like what Chirag said. They figure some stuff out and start time traveling or possibly doing something like that. Or, yeah. Maybe the Galanthi becomes like a portal or something. Have you have you guys seen uh, the third Matrix movie? Um, yeah. I think it's like Revolutions or something. You know how Neo uh, travels to the machine city where all the machines are like on their planet? Maybe it's something like that where they all have to travel to the Galanthi planet where the Galanthi are originally from to figure out like maybe the Galanthi on Earth dies for some reason, but they get the spaceship with its coordinates to the home world <laughs> and they just go along and try to go see like, oh, why? What is this about? What? How do we fix this or something? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I kept, I kept asking to myself, I was like, how much? information are we going to get about the Galanthi? Because they, they have two options. They can either keep it this kind of godlike figure that we don't really know how they work, but we have a basic understanding of it, or they can go into precisely how they work and how their rules of society are and the way that the way that they function and why they exist, which could be very interesting as well. Um, there's also the theory of the whole um, simulation thing. I feel like that needs more explaining. Like this 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 future has these simulation strips and that's, you know, kind of like a virtual reality for people, I guess. But these ones look as if they're based in reality. Like how can they know a reality and create a reality of someone from like the Victorian age and put it on a strip? Are they actual real things or it's just like this is what we think it was like in Victoria times? The whole oh, what's interesting? What I'm remembering now in regards to the simulation strips is one of the soldiers when they see the farm says, "This looks like something out of a farmer's daughter's sim." So I think it is similar to a dollhouse thing where they can take somebody's lived experience and create a simulation out of it. Now the question is, how can they do that with somebody from the Victorian era? But I do think that they are like built from people for sure. Yeah, and I mean, Penance has the technology right now to create kind of robotic looking human beings or at least metal shells that function she could gather the technology and create something where she can put her personality possibly or her mind into something like that and essentially create like an AI 
robot or a copy of herself. Um, I don't know. I just feel like there's so many possibilities with everything that we've mentioned. And I'm hoping that no matter which direction they go in, it will be amazing. Yeah, I agree. I was I was thinking too from the beginning. I said something that would be so interesting because you have these characters like Hugo and Masson. Uh, I said there's nothing kind of out of the realm of another touched event happening and creating people that are touched that are otherwise super against the touched. And I was like, that would be really interesting. I mean, that's kind of shifted now that we've seen these six episodes. But I remember from the beginning being like, that's totally a possibility. Because um, if there's anything we know that Whedon shows like to do is like they'll set up the mythology of the show and then kind of find these holes within the mythology that can play with the rules that they've created. And then that's what creates the shock and the surprise out of these events. And it's like something that would very logically happen, but you didn't necessarily expect to happen. I don't know if you guys have seen Avatar The Last Airbender, but in the sequel series uh, where Korra, there was a there was that character who could take away the uh the bending powers of the all the all the characters so i I feel like with the cure thing that's happening and even the x-men there was a cure so if there is a cure and masson kind of weaponizes that cure or maybe somebody else does it could become an interesting thing of oh like uh, Penance gets shot with a little cure dart and she can't make inventions anymore as, as she originally could and it's something to contend with like who am I without my ability now that I've gotten so attached to it am I still worthy can I still do something uh, important I mean it reminds me of the episode of Buffy where it's like her 18th birthday and they they you know inject her with something that takes away her slayer powers and it's like you know that's the first time she's dealing with oh my god I'm I'm normal for the most part. And she has like a, she realizes how important her power is to her. Yeah. I think you also realize how strong a person can be without their power though. There's like that flip side to it. Like all these, all these people had, well, a lot of them like penance. She had like the mindset of an inventor already. And this kind of like just helped, helped her grow. Is there a future where once the Galanthi, like if they stay in the past and they work with this single Galanthi to create a better future that just doesn't wind up where that one did? Um, is there a point where the Galanthi says, you don't need these powers anymore and just takes them back from them and they all just go about their regular lives again? But they've all grown as people and they're all still got like these traits. Like Penance would still be an inventor, I think. She'd still, but she just wouldn't see the energy like she does now. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe, like, have, have they just got these gifts for a set time that the Galanthi needs them to have them to do whatever it wants them to do? Because, like, if it if it puts the world right and then the Galanthi goes back to its home planet, does that does their power that is essentially part of the Galanthi's energy, I would assume, go go with it? What's also interesting is we're assuming that the Galanthi have a planet. I keep thinking back to that little ball in the void of space, and I'm like, maybe they're just, like, you know, the the omnipresent force that just kind of exists in like, I don't know, similar to like a being that's like doesn't exist in our dimension. So you can't see them kind of thing, but they like exist around and they don't really need a planet kind of thing. Yeah. They just kind of like drift through space and you'd hope in however long that they've existed, possibly since the dawn of time drifting around the universe that they go to planets and they help people. And then they come to earth and humans just screw it up. 
<laughs> I'll move on to some letters from, from listeners and see what they've got to say. So uh, we're going to open up the Nervous Mailbox and see what our listeners have to say. Uh, this is an email from Kathy B. Uh, I loved how you matched some of the Nevers characters with Joss Whedon Firefly characters. On, thing, uh, on thinking about that, Amalia fits with River. River is also a violent personality who was experimented on and sees things as a result. Uh, I always thought Amalia and Malady were in an insane institution together. That would explain why Amalia said they don't have funerals where she came from, no time and no space, because in an asylum there is no space to bury anyone and the body is disposed of immediately. The fact that she woke up knowing things that she sh- uh, shouldn't could be that she uh, wasn't drugged enough and knew what was going on, maybe with Sarah uh, slash Malady. I also saw more scars on Amalia, but I wasn't sure if that was where she was cut in episode one um, and shot in episode two. The preview of episode six shows Amalia in a padded cell with Lavinia. Lavinia says to her, I thought you'd be miles away by now. Is this a flashback? Malady also mentioned that she remembered a black uh, in a doctor's coat. Could Horatio have been a doctor at the asylum and helped Amalia to escape? Uh, that might be why she left Sarah behind. Mr. True may have, commit, uh, may have committed Amalia for some secrets she knew. Uh, enjoy your podcast. Uh, thank you, Kathy B. So I think they're all good theories. Um, obviously, now we know, uh, like we've seen now, the backstory of um, Amalia and Malady at the, at the insane asylum. Yeah, Kathy's getting a lot of it banged <laughs> on. I but I feel like for me the easier comparison to River for me is still Malady because like both of their brains got messed with. Both of them speak in that broken poetry language. Amalia feels more like a Malcolm Reynolds kind of because if you'll remember in the Firefly pilot episode, we see Mal fighting in this crazy war just like Zephyr was, but like we see Mal kissing the cross around his neck because in that moment he still has faith and then when the promised backup doesn't arrive that was his moment of losing faith so mal doesn't really believe in anything greater than himself and his crew and survival until the movie serenity when he finally finds a cause a mission to fight for and to die for so amalia is also kind of lost hope after fighting for so long and like as we talked about earlier the shows kind of like her journey to regaining the hope and regaining a mission. I personally appreciate the, um, I have not heard somebody compare Malcolm to uh, Amalia. And I like that because of course everybody was going, Amalia's Buffy, Amalia's Buffy. And I was like, no, they're totally different. All right. Uh, we have an email from our friend Berzer. He says, Hiya, one thing I love about the Whedonverse is how well each episode is constructed. In every episode of Buffy, Angel, Firefly, and Dollhouse, there is an overhanging theme or perhaps even a kind of thesis statement of the day. This theme affects everything. It affects the plot, both the main plot and the individual plot of every character. Furthermore, it affects the tone and the visual style. Certain scenes are played for laughs in one episode, even though a similar scene would have been played absolutely straight in another episode. So far, The Nevers has taken a much more serialized approach to its storytelling. Chirag pointed out that the first episode touched deals heavily with betrayal, and it is true that every episode does have its own plot and may focus more strongly on some of the show's themes, but I still feel like the episodes are much less internally consistent and distinct from one another than we are used to from a Weedonverse show. 
The show has also quite a lin- ha- has been quite linear so far. We are moving in a single direction, learning more and more as we go. I hope the second half of the season will have time for some stops and detours. At this rate, the show will eventually run out of secrets. I think the show needs to take some time to dwell on and explore the parts of the tapestry that has already been revealed. I must admit that the half-season finale did some great work by going back to some points that had only been alluded to before to the show rather than uh, tell what happened. I guess I sound very negative, so I want to point out that there are many advantages to the serialized approach, and the episodic approach of older shows certainly had its disadvantages. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for your email, Berzer. I think you're totally right. I think the serialized nature of modern TV makes it less distinguishable from all the other episodes, kind of like they're built to blend in together for the binge watchers. Um, but you know, like going back to old TV before Netflix binge days, every episode was more episodic and, um, unique and distinguishable and all of them had something different to say from the previous one or the next one. But I don't know if that was necessarily the better approach because of course a lot of it is just like network motivated so they can syndicate episodes to fill up time slots and stuff, but um, I don't know. I like the balance and the actually I think it was episode two where the betrayal was such a strong thematic through line and had that coherence to it, which I really enjoyed about episode two. And um, the other episodes, you're right, didn't have that same thematic internal consistency that we see like in Firefly, for example, where every episode is so different from the other episodes. But I don't know. What do you guys think? I definitely agree. We had kind of mentioned this before and touched on the same points that Chirag just mentioned. But I do think that one thing that kind of like does place this within the weed inverse of other shows is what they all kind of do, uh, even in the episodes themselves, is the metaphor isn't hidden to the viewer. The metaphor is usually like pretty like ham-fisted and in your face. And because the metaphor is so obvious that you don't even have to question it, uh, exploring the characters becomes more interesting because you're no longer trying to figure out what this metaphor is. And the Nevers, I feel like, does the same thing, but on a larger scale. So I kind of look at these first six episodes. Like, when they finished, I was like, wow, that's a really good pilot. Like, I understand what the mission is now. Uh, Where this show did the same thing, it, like... I mean, come on, it's so obvious that this is about, like, uh, oppression and the oppression of people and, you know, men in charge of society, whereas that was so obvious from the beginning that it allows them to do all these interesting things that led up to where we are now. And it could have been really hard to balance uh, making individualized episodes with all these different themes and elements uh, because there is so much more going on with the mysterious nature of the show, which I think just lends itself to being serialized. Hmm. Yeah, I think I mentioned when we started the podcast that I like this show because each episode is kind of... It doesn't have a set plan that like they follow a route every episode. Every episode's been kind of different so far. Whereas with like Buffy and Angel, you get the whole... There's all, always, you know, a, a baddie or a monster they're going after each episode. They beat it, move on to the next one. Um, Dollhouse has like the assignment or the, the engagement they go on every episode. Um, Firefly while being very different every episode they're going on some kind of like adventure um whereas this is kind of you know and they all have their themes that run through overall but they kind of like takes that longer time to get to 
this I like because not only do we get to the point pretty quickly, but every episode kind of has a different structure. So for me, I just find it like really entertaining and not really like anything else I've ever watched because it's kind of, it's all over the place, but also really well organized and put together at the same time. I I feel like uh, it's less of a conscious choice uh, from the writers to say, we're going to present it in this way. I do feel like it's a little bit more of that's just the way TV is now because I could very easily take what we have of the Nevers right now and put it into that episodic format. Like I I could see it being a 22 episode run where the first five episodes is Penance and True kind of gathering a different person that's coming to the orphanage. So that's why I, 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 I feel like it's because of the product of TV is the ways now as opposed to like a conscious choice to be like, this is how we want to present it. But I think this is a much better way. I think, I, I I don't know. I feel like I would have enjoyed it if it was the other way. Like you say, like loads of filler episodes where they're getting people to come to the orphanage and, and, and do whatever else. And we slowly learn what's happening. But I'm thoroughly enjoyed the way that this has been put together. And I get that viewers might think that, I don't know, maybe it's not going to have a very long run. But especially for Whedon fans, like with Firefly and Dollhouse, we're kind of used to some shows being short-lived. And it might be something that Joss Whedon was fearful about with his runs with previous um, kind of TV studios and what they've done to his his shows. Um, I don't know. Maybe the second half of it will have a much better performance than the first half did critically and in terms of the audience reaction. But if it doesn't have the reaction then a second season is kind of in jeopardy, which means the story as it unfurls will have to be a lot more... I don't want to say it, it, it'll have to come out more quickly or it'll have to resolve more definitely, but a lot of the secrets that might have been expanded to season two, three, four, I think will have to you know, be condensed a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of shows I've watched on like Netflix and stuff. And because I have so much product and so many TV shows, they cancel stuff really easily. Like, oh, that show's been cancelled and you've had one season and you're never going to know what happened, right? And it's really frustrating. So if you go into a TV show with the fear that you might get cancelled within one or two seasons, then hopefully you're going to be able to at least deliver one or two concise seasons that people are going to love and can watch on their own and... Um, yeah because you don't want to like get halfway through a story and have all these questions and then you get cancelled and they're never going to be answered or you end up having to make comic books or whatever about them that majority of the viewers are not going to go and read and yeah so I don't know I think short and sweet with TV sometimes better you mentioned earlier Tyler that um, Walking Dead before it got bad there's a prime example of a show that I've you know I watched the first few seasons and thought this is pretty good and then it just kind of, yeah, just kind of destroyed itself, in my opinion. Um, we have another email from Lee. Uh, this is about his thoughts on episode six. So, hello, I love the podcast. Thank you both for making it and putting your time and effort into it. It really helps to make sense of the show. I wanted to throw out a few thoughts that I had. So earlier in the season, Malady calls Amalia the woman who sheds her skin and says that God told her about the woman who sheds her skin. Uh, That makes me think that, besides seeing and remembering the Galanthi, Malady received information from it or understood its language. I'm interested to know more about the communication and the relationship between Malady and the Galanthi in the future. 
Um, secondly, I think that Lavinia is trying to harvest the power of the touch to heal her paralysis. So even though she's not, <laughs> even though she's not necessarily evil, I think she's interested in the touch for selfish reasons. Um, and then thirdly, I just really love the scene from the asylum where the older woman is essentially teaching Stripe how to be a well-mannered Victorian woman. It was just a fun little snippet and I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm excited to see, uh, to watch the show through again and see what Easter eggs are there. Any updates as to when we should expect the next six episodes? Um, thank you, Lee. Um, I, I, right, let's go through this one by one. So the first one, the woman who sheds her skin. Yeah, I think I covered this bit earlier, like what I think anyway, about the the communication, the relationship between Malady and the Galanthi, that perhaps, while she doesn't understand the language like Myrtle does, that it's more of an emotional relationship and that's how they communicate. Because even in the future where you see like the Doctor with the Galanthi in person um, is almost like an animal and it doesn't... They're not talking and even though... I don't know, they talk about how they're connected and the spores let them communicate, but you don't. we don't get any instances or a glimpse that anyone's actually ever had a full conversation with the Galanthi. Well, it has a language that was in- interpretable by Myrtle, and we do know that when it was raining spores in the future, a lot of the people who got, got uh, rained on were able to understand its language. But I don't know if the scientists in the bunker were of that population. So Lee thinks that Lavinia's harvesting the power of the touch to heal her paralysis. I think that's right. Yes. I yeah, agree. I think that's definitely um, at least part of her goal. Um, I'm kind of with you that she's not necessarily evil as well. I think I've been fighting the Lavinia corner from the beginning and I'm hoping that there'll be some form of redemption possibly once all the orphanage, all the orphans know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's a way that you can like sit there and be okay with lobotomy and also not have a selfish motive. Like I, I can't there's no way I can like uh, like in my mind I can't do the psychological sudoku to figure out the math of how they're going to redeem her without her being a like dying or Oh, I, I don't think know. she'll it, die. <laughs> Yeah, for sure, she's going to die. It's a dying redemption. Like, if she figures (laughs) out... There's no way. If she knows what the orphans are going to be fighting for, and what... Like, if she knows from Amalia what the true uh, heritage of the Galanthi are, and she kind of gets pulled away from the crazy doctor, will she help them? I don't know. Because these are people that she actually has a relationship with. All these randomers that are being pulled in off the street, she doesn't know them, right? But... Like Amalia, and that she has some form of relationship with, and especially like her brother is one of the touch. There'll be a turning point, I'm sure, where she's like shocked at what she's been doing. I don't know, maybe. Oh, yeah, the scene with the older lady at the um, orphanage, yeah, basically teaching uh, Zephyr how to be a perfect Victorian lady. Yeah, I absolutely love Lee, this writer, because in in my video I did for this episode, I loved that sequence. I said it reminded me of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and like how some of the asylum patients like are well-mannered individuals that understand how society works, but ironically are in an institution and like... (laughs) 
you know, we don't really know why why that woman is there to begin with, but in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, some of them, like, kind of prefer to be in the asylum. So I... Thank you, Lee. I appreciate you appreciating that scene. <laughs> I didn't think of that because it's true. They're, they're all in an asylum and yet they know how to perform society. Like they can perform a noble uh, person who's normal and all that uh, manners and politeness. And it really yeah, is. Totally. A, like, yeah. yeah, like I could I could see this woman just being like, I understand how it all works. Mm-hmm. I prefer to reject it. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's like reading the paper too. Like she's just very interesting, that mm. woman. It reminded me of, of uh, Eliza Doolittle trying to learn how to speak. Okay. Uh, I can move on to the next email. Uh, we have an email from Larry Geller, uh, subject from the Overthinking Stuff Department. I think we're all from there. Dear Laura and Chirag, and, uh, and I, I, I think she also wrote Tyler. I'll add that in. <laughs> I thought Fairy Man was an odd name for a come for sex club and wondered if it was a subtle play on words by Joss, not Hugo Swan, with the similarly sounding word pheromone, which means something that draws animals to a place where sex partners await. Say pheromone, pheromone five times fast. Pheromone, 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 pheromone. It, I got you, I got you. <laughs> Love the pod. Thank you, Larry Geller. So I think... I think that's a great observation. I'm on board. Uh, it totally makes sense. In addition to that, I think it's also definitely a reference to the ferryman who conveys the souls of the dead across the river of Styx to the dark kingdom of Hades in Greek mythology, which is why Hugo has those coins, because in ancient Greece, like when someone dies, they'd place coins on their eyes, so in the afterlife, they'd have fare to pay the ferryman. Um... And also, like, the Greek reference plays because to a noble English society, the Greeks were probably considered these freaky, sex-crazed pagans and, you know, doing all all their artwork and stuff. Yeah, I thought the same, that it's just kind of like, you know, you give the ferryman a coin and he takes you to the underworld and this is an underground sex club full of sin, you know? It's like the underworld or hell. But it is, yeah, I didn't think about it. It does very, very sound like pheromone. So it might be that it's also a kind of play on words. Multiple meanings. Mm. All right. Thank you. And uh, we have an email from Thomas Harrison. Uh, They write, I thought the technique used to tell the backstory was brilliant. I've already watched this episode twice, second time with subtitles turned on so as to catch every bit of dialogue. The reveal of the stripe as future Molly Amalia was well done. Nice to see Claudia Black again. Flushing out Amalia's backstory made me think back to episode one and the strange greeting. Penance and Amalia would share and didn't seem strange any longer. Penance, you look fine today, Mrs. True. Amalia, I think so too. Keep up the good work, guys. Thank you, Tom, for email. I do love that greeting that they have between them. I love how it punctuates every act of the first episode, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the best episode. Aside from my fanhood for episode two, (laughs) episode one is my favorite. Episode one was one of the best pilots I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I mentioned it on our on our podcast that, you know, even some of my favorite shows ever take a couple at least a couple episodes to kind of like fully get into. Whereas this I was, yeah, in from like the first moment. Like the just the first moment you meet Amalia and Penance is like, I love them. They're the best duo ever. Yeah, I can't wait to see what happens. And yeah, it didn't didn't disappoint. And that opening scene without any dialogue took me in, loved it. Mm. 
And I've been watching a lot of them with subtitles now, just because of like some of the stuff that our uh, listeners have picked up on with watching with the subtitles. So is um. People don't do that normally. See, I've never. <laughs> I, keep, I see memes all the time that are like um, always watch Netflix or whatever with the subtitles on, because uh, a lot of the time they're just automatically on and you don't really notice. But I never watch things with the subtitles, but because um, otherwise, just out of curiosity, when you put the subtitles on, does it tell you what Myrtle is saying? No, no it whenever... does not. It says untranslated. <laughs> yeah, it just says um, speaking something in yeah, a different language. Another language. Yeah, the only reason I put it on is because sometimes the accents are hard for me to understand. So I want to make sure I understand all of it. So maybe that's why you don't, Laura. It's also the sound mixing. Sometimes with shows, it's really hard with the music and all the, the foley they put in. Sometimes it's not leveled great and you can't really hear what characters are saying. And especially this, like there's a lot of dialogue and there's a lot of characters that speak a lot. So it's like quite helpful because I watched like... When I do watch like foreign stuff or anime and that, I watch it with the subtitles. So I'm used to like really paying attention to it. So then when I'm watching a show like this where I don't need to need the subtitles, I find myself paying too much attention to the, the subtitles. And then I miss like like some of what's going on when I could be paying like all my attention to, to the show itself. Uh, moving on, we have an email from Judy. Um, Your podcast helps but still don't like the show. You want to meet hello, me outside, had... Judy? <laughs> <laughs> she says, hello, I had high hopes for the Nevers, but it's never lived up to the trailers. I've stuck with some pretty convoluted TV series like Legion, Watchmen, Westworld, Lovecraft's uh, Country, to name a few, but I just can't get myself to care about the Nevers, despite some marginally interesting vaguely fleshed out characters and nice costumes. I do think your podcast discussions are a decent attempt to help viewers understand the story. I don't expect you to read this on air. Uh, It's a thumbs down from me. Uh, This is Judy in Santa Cruz. Uh, Thank you, Judy. I think like what we would, I I mean, I guess we're all on board. We love the show from episode one. Like um, Tyler just said that it was the best pilot ever. I do get though that it is, it's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot thrown in. It's kind of, like I said, all over the place, but I find also very well organized. I can understand why people might not like it. Oh, absolutely. I had a whole conversation with a friend of mine that doesn't like it. And it comes down to uh, neither of the like, neither of these are negative or positive, but there's two different types of viewers of media. There's like, you know, active viewers and passive viewers. Some people like to be given the information uh, where that's a passive viewer, whereas an active viewer likes to kind of be like one step ahead of the story and trying to dissect. So I think it just comes down to different ways that you like to absorb media. Judy, uh, uh, I've triangulated your location and I'm coming for you in Santa Cruz. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, it's it's totally cool. It's not for everyone. It's it's not a very it's a very dense show. It's like a triple fudge chocolate cake, you know, um, very dense, very, very it's not simple to watch. Yeah, I mean the subtext in the show is 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 very there. I mean, I had a whole friend that didn't realize that Frank was gay after the third episode, <laughs> and I was like, "That's that's that's right." Like, if you're if you weren't like you know like truly truly in it, I, I can understand why you would miss something like that. Yeah, I mean, my mum watched it and she loved it, but she's like me. We don't necessarily like what like the my only down thing for this show maybe is that there's like a bit too much like sex and nudity. I don't mind it so much when it's in the ferryman's club because it's kind of like, well, that's in the story, kind of got to be there. But like with the rest of it, I'm kind of like, whenever it comes to TV shows or movies, 
if I don't feel like it 100% has to be there to convey the story or the characters, then I don't, I, I just don't need it to be there. Like, f- for me, that's per- my personal, like, viewing preferences is, like, I'm happy with no sex and no nudity. Um, it, that's just for me. But I feel like I like the show so much that I can look past it. Um, and there's not as much as I thought there was going to be. From I was the beginning, just a, I really... I was just yeah. about to say the same thing, that I was like, I actually think it's pretty tame, like, after, after like, Game of Thrones, where that was so mm-hmm. sexual, yeah. and, like, that's kind of what got people into the show. I was expecting that with this, and I was surprised to see less of it than I thought I was going to see. Yeah. I totally get what you guys are saying, but I, I don't know if you guys remember the character uh, that they were talking about, Bendy Wendy. Yeah. I think they really missed an opportunity <laughs> over there to really do some really good sex and nudity with Bendy Wendy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, she... But other than that, I agree with you, Laura. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's just one of those things, I guess. But yeah, we need more male like nudity. H- <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, and I think there were some bits that my mom kind of... She's one of those viewers. She like she's seen the Matrix. We watch them like every few years. We'll sit and watch all the Matrix films, and she loves them. She enjoys them because of the action and everything. But she doesn't to this day understand the story. But she'll still watch it. So this, I think, she watched it. She really enjoyed it. And then after she'd watched it, when I, I, I sat down to kind of discuss it with her and say my favorite parts and like what we've been talking about on the podcast, she was like, "Oh, I didn't. Oh, I didn't catch that, and I didn't notice this." So I think it is one of those shows where you definitely. Unless you've really hated it, you need to kind of you can go back and watch it and really kind of delve in a lot more than you did on the first watch. So yeah, who knows? Maybe the second half will be better for you, Judy. Um, I've got a couple of emails now that are kind of about the same thing, so I'll read them both and then we will discuss. So the first one is from Cassie Craig. Um, I've been looking for clues that the Mad Doctor is the other time traveller. In episode two, when we first see Mrs. Bidlow come down to visit, he says, ain't we got fun? She replies that he is confounded by the mother tongue. Ain't we got fun premiered on the Fanchon and Marco show satires of 1920, where it was sung by Arthur West. Bing Crosby recorded it in 1960. Maybe I missed one of you catching this, but I'm almost sure if you had, there would be no question as to who the other traveller was. I just love this pod. So glad I found it. Cassie. Um, the second email is from Tash, LOL. Uh, I'm rewatching The Nevers now that I've watched it all once and listened to your podcast. I wanted to catch all the little nuggets you shared during your podcast as I watched a second time. Anyways, Chirag mentioned that he believes that Dr. Haig also travelled back in time with Zephyr, and I agree. And I have proof. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I was thinking that throughout the season he might have let things slip sang lyrics or quoted movies or books from the future. I think I caught one. At the end of episode two, Exposure, when Lavinia goes down to the mine to see the new development of the Galanth, uh, the Galanthi, Dr. Hay quotes a song by saying, Ain't we got fun? And Lavinia says something about him being American and not speaking the mother tongue. But then she says, this is not fun, this is war. So I thought I knew those words uh, or lyrics. And sure enough, they first came out in the 1920s and were popularised in the 50s and 60s. The lyrics were symbolic of the Roaring Twenties. So no one in Victorian England would have heard this, this phrase, which is why Lavinia just chalks it up to him being American. Now I want to search for more anachronisms. So thank you, uh, Cassie and Tash. Um, I didn't pick up on this. I've never heard of of this song. That is a good catch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I think that's definitive proof. I think we proved it. 
yeah, I didn't know this song. And when, when I read these letters, I was kind of like, oh, Chirag was right. He is from the future and this proves it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and to add to the the proof, he's the one that starts the line that says, did you think you were the only one that hitched a ride? And I only know that from the subtitles. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. so like the line goes, did did you think, and it says Dr. Haig next to it is speaking, and then it <gasps> changes to a woman's voice that says, we're the only one that hitched a ride. That's what led me to believe Lavinia too, but I seem to be the only one on that yeah, side. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say, it is a female voice that I, that I thought I heard say that. That was my only thing that i was hedging my bets on but now that you but it say is that, funny because i didn't pick it up until the subtitle moment that dr Haig starts the line and then it shifts into a female voice it's like the whole series has had all these big mysteries but they've actually been throwing the answers in our face the entire time if you uh, pay attention literally every twist and turn has pretty much been been um forecast in the show oh yeah it's going to be one of those shows where you go back and you show it to a friend you know and you're watching along with them and amalia is going to say some line that gives away everything and you're going to be like they're going to know what's going on like they're going to figure <laughs> it out <laughs> yeah cassie and tasha lol you're brilliant yeah good thanks for doing the research we completely missed that part so yeah uh, if anyone else has any comments, theories, or questions, you can tweet it to us at the Nevers Podcast without an A. You can also send us your letter or a voice recording to the Nevers Podcast at gmail.com and we'll read all the letters in an upcoming episode. I wanted, I wanted to mention something just in terms of Game of Thrones. I just want to throw this out there. So, the character of Bran Stark, you know who I'm talking about, Tyler, and I'm sure a lot of the viewers will. It feels to me like his character, the Three-Eyed Raven, they kind of divided into several Nevers characters. Like, they gave the bird powers to Augustus, the wheelchair to Lavinia, and the visions to Amalia. I just wanted to throw that out I there. I love that, because I definitely connected uh, Augie and Bran with the warg power, but I didn't even think about the other the other two. I love that. Exactly. <laughs> Any final thoughts for you guys? I can't wait to see what happens. I'm along for the ride. Yeah, I'm trying to think of when it's going to happen. Like, I think it's filming soon. Uh, there's filming happening soon. Yes. Um, yeah. But I don't know, obviously, with the current restrictions, how long it takes, um, how long it's projected to take and when it will be. I think we're predicted early or possibly autumn again next year, maybe. All I really hope for is, you know, we're changing showrunners, of course, and the rest of the mm-hmm. writing crew is staying the same. So I just hope that it, it does seem like they have a very, very distinct plan at what they want to do. And I just hope that they kind of stick with that because it would be such a shame if if things were kind of omitted from what they wanted to do because they didn't think it was important or something like that, where it could have led to something really awesome with what they've set up. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it doesn't get watered down. Yeah. We don't want a, um, yeah, hopefully they'll give them kind of free, well, I'm hoping, like you said, they've got the story set out and they kind of know where all these characters are going to go and what's happening. You know, like with the whole Star Wars trilogy and, you know, we've got one director for the first film and then a different director and then another one, like back to the first. So the movies just kind of aren't coherent. They cl- it, It's like, that's the big example of there wasn't a clear vision or storyline of where they wanted to go from point A to point B. Like, even if you've got different directors, writers, whoever, like, if there's a set story, at least we know what we thought was going to happen is going to happen. Like, it'd be really upsetting if, like, everything just went randomly crazy different. But, um... 
I was going to say, especially when you're dealing with time travel, you have the ability to do really cool things if you plan it out. And I immediately think to if there's any super sci-fi fans listening uh, to Babylon 5, which I'm actually currently in the middle of watching. And the reason I was interested is because it was actually planned. It was one of the first shows that were completely planned out for five seasons that was on network television, and it deals with time travel. So what's really cool that the show can do is like in season two, they will see their future selves doing the time traveling that by the time you get to season four or five, they end up time traveling to that point. So it's like things can be set up really interestingly, especially with time travel, if you have it planned and you stick to it. So um, I wanted to kind of, before we wrap it up, I wanted to talk about the overarching themes because that's kind of like the main work that I did before we began this recap is that I wanted to think about what some of the questions were overall. So for me, the like some of the questions like, are the Galanthi benevolent? like Knitter was believing, are they malevolent, like the Free Lifers and perhaps Lavinia believe, um, are the powers a gift like Penance believes, are they a curse like Lucy and Lord Masson believe, uh, and then we're going to go forward and see, like, should we put our stock in hope, in the hope of Mary, Knitter, and the Galanthi, who pretty much were all killed, or should we put our stock in dis- in despair, in the despair of Stripe and Lucy, um, And then one other thing that I wanted to uh, get out there was this theme, like aside from the theme of betrayal, one of the biggest themes that I noticed and that we've talked about for like the last month is the theme of resisting change and archaism, which is represented by Lord Masson versus futurism, the idea of a better world. This thing happens, I feel like, through every generational generational transition where the previous generation kind of sees the younger generation as a menace or a threat or a radical change that upsets their power structure. And when I was looking over all these episodes, I dug up this quote that it reminded me of. So this is a quote. Children, they have bad manners, contempt for authority, They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise, and they no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents and tyrannize their teachers. Children are now tyrants. So now that sounds like something like your your boomer grandpa would say, right? (laughs) Yes. That's a quote from Socrates in 470 BC about the young people of his day. That that's that's what this reminded me of, like the Freudian idea of the tension between parent and child, because the parent is destined to be replaced by the child. And it's just a matter of like how soon. And it it reminds me of the, the motif of patricide in almost every mythology and theology on the planet. Like the obvious example is Oedipus. But in Greek myth, you have Uranus who gets overthrown by Cronus, his son who gets overthrown by his son Zeus. Like, nobody wants to lose their power and get replaced. Like, Cronus swallows all his children to avoid getting replaced. So it feels like, in this show, Lord Masson is not just, in all likelihood, locking up his own child in a dungeon, in that kind of parent-child tension, but I think that's it's also representative of his generation and his status quo and the British Empire as it was uh, kind of beefing with the British Empire that could be the more progressive, the more, um, you know, 
the idea of reparations, the idea of progress, the idea of change, all of these things, I thought for me that really encapsulates these six episodes that we saw. If I had to boil it down to a theme, that would be the theme that I that I pick. But that that's my final thought, really. <laughs> Wonderfully said. I'll say a much less eloquent and uh, short final thought. I thought this show so far is awesome, and I can't wait for more. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Concise. <laughs> Wrapping up now, that'll do it for this podcast. Well, this episode of the podcast. Um, if you enjoy the Nevers podcast, we would, of course, like it if you left us a positive review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music Podcasts, and YouTube, or wherever else you stream your podcasts. For more Nevers-related content... You can find us on the web at hbothenevers.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hbothenevers, and at the Nevers Podcast, and also at the Nevers Podcast without an A. Comments or questions can be sent to the Nevers Podcast at gmail.com, and please also rate and review our podcast and help us reach more listeners. So, uh, yeah, that's all for today's episode. Thank you so much, Tyler. Um, uh, thank you. <laughs> It's been really nice having uh, another voice to join us um, and get some more crazy theories. Yeah, this has been so nice. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. You're awesome. You guys are awesome. <laughs> you do a great job. Uh, would you like to share your social media and stuff so people can find you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that you can find me at Tyler Austin on YouTube. You could just search Tyler Austin the Nevers because I do share a name with a New York Yankee and some real estate guy on YouTube. So that's not me. Uh <laughs> I, I've been working on videos, you know, that follow the Nevers and I kind of take a filmmaking, editing, writing kind of approach and give you a little visual show while I do it. And I'm also on Twitter at, at Tyler Austin. Awesome. Thank you, Chirag, of course. Um, <laughs> you, do you want people to find you online or you're a mysterious being and you just want to be hiding in the shadows there? <laughs> <laughs> No, you can tell you can find me. You can find me on Twitter at Mayan Mailman. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me uh time traveling <laughs> back to the first episode of this podcast and telling you everything. <laughs> if anyone wants to find me, you can find me uh the best stuff's on my Instagram, which is uh Laura JP seventeen twenty one. Yeah, thank you everyone who's listening. And everyone that has listened to every episode so far, I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, we'll be back with new episodes reviewing the uh, next six, six episodes when we get them. Until then, we encourage you to listen to old episodes and keep an eye out on our socials for any updates. And stay tuned for season two of our In Conversation With series. So, yeah, until next time, this has been the Nevers Podcast. Bye. 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 Thank you. Before we move on, I'm going to run to the bathroom quickly. Uh, I might join you while you're doing that. Oh, yeah. You, you guys go ahead. I'll vamp. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the weather. There's a cold front coming in, for me at least, from Canada. So I'm wearing a jacket. This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Jilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. 
you can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers Podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. Fucking electricity.